many of you love your pastor? Amen. God is so good, isn't he? Amen. We are, uh, I've said many times, we are blessed people uh, who attend Antioch. Uh, we're not blessed because we live in the state of Maryland. <clears throat> I love Maryland. Uh, Maryland is home for me. Uh, Arkansas is a great place to be from. Uh, but uh, we're, we're not blessed because we've got a great view of the bay or any of that. We're blessed uh, because of the leadership that God has placed us under. And, uh, amen. <clears throat> amen. We are, we are blessed uh, by the word that uh, they have sought after and put into us. And uh, I'm thankful. Amen. I'm thankful for Bishop, thankful for Pastor, um, thankful for all of those that, uh, that bring the Word of God to us. Amen. Aren't you? Amen. Well, um, I'm, since uh, we'll, we'll be uh, official here, I'm not going to try to rush. Uh, but I'm also not going to try to prolong this. Uh, if you want to, we'll start with a scripture. That way you guys will all feel like that, we've, that I've started. So if you want to uh, gather your Bibles up, <laughs> Brother Isaac's like, nah, uh, you must not start with the scripture last week. Uh, let's, let's turn to Romans chapter 12 and uh, verse 1. And that's really kind of going to be the uh, place that we get to at some point. Say amen when you got it. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. The Bible says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Uh, so before I start, I've got to do one thing or I'm going to be in trouble when I get home. So hello, David Mott. Daddy is watching you. You still have fever and you cannot come to church. But I love you. Oh, he's giving his mother great patience uh, this evening because he wanted to come with daddy. Um, I want to, uh, so if you've got a pen, I need, I need some help uh, because I see a lot of faces here that I know that you have emailed me over the last, say, five or six years requesting particular notes. And uh, my email is not uh, for, from sessions that I've done on alt altar working. My email is not working uh, the way that I would like for it to work. It's Apple email. It's not Brother Kimbrell's uh, issue. And so I'm just going to list real quick the uh, sessions that I've done by name. And if you can, jot that down. And if those are notes that you had emailed me previously about uh, that you want, you can email me back uh, at smont at myantioch.org. The first one is history. An origin of the altar. The second session is uh, purpose and 
process of the altar, and that's in particular about God as a consuming fire, proving the will of God. Ministering at the altar requires a life lived on the altar, and that offenses must come. And then uh, there's another session uh, entitled Power, Authority, and Dominion, the Role and Rule of a Covering. Uh, Next session is Faith is a Process, Not a Destination. And then there's another session uh, called Sounds of the Kingdom, and uh, that is talking about God makes a sound when he moves, Lucifer made a sound when he moved, Aaron's uh, robe made a sound, and we make a sound when we minister. Uh, And then uh, there's a session, The Doctrine of Laying on of Hands, and a session of the gift of faith, and then a session about practical application. So if any of those you have emailed me since you uh, started taking breath, if you could re-email me that you would like those notes, I would greatly appreciate it. Now, if you email me and say, hey, I'll take all your notes, I'm just going to dump my study notes on you, and uh, you can sort through the seven or 800 pages that it is. Praise God. So tonight, I uh, want to start <clears throat> with ministering on uh, the history and the origin of the altar. Uh, I think it's important any time that you're going to... Uh, that you're going to teach on a particular subject about how to be used in a particular area, it's it's absolutely imperative that you understand what the history or the origin of that is. And in reality, we're probably going to try to, I'm going to do my best to try to combine uh, two sessions into one, so we're going to be moving pretty quick. Uh, And so we're going to try to cover the history and the origin of the altar, but also cover Uh, the process and the purpose of the altar. So those are really four things that I think that if you, if any person is going to be used uh, of God with working with people uh, to help build their faith, to help move them on, to take faith steps that you need to understand. So with that in mind, I want to take you uh, back to the Old Testament. And uh, I'm probably not pronouncing uh, this right just because my Hebrew and hillbilly uh, kind of get mixed up whenever I start trying to uh, pronounce words that aren't my primary language. Can, can I get an amen? Your your Maryland accent probably isn't much better. Uh, and I saw some Pennsylvania license plate. Wherever, wherever you're from, uh, you probably don't pronounce those words exactly like they're supposed to be pronounced. So, uh, but uh, the the Hebrew word, John, for altar is... Uh, it's Mizbach, and it, it's spelled M-I-Z and then beach. How about that? Is that easy for you? And uh, it's basically found 396 times in the Old Testament. And in reality, what it, what it means is it literally means to slaughter an animal uh, or to sacrifice or to kill. And when we're... When, Generally, when you are studying uh, a particular topic at some point during your study, one of the things that you ought to incorporate into that study is uh, a, a process that's called a study process that's called the law of first mention. And what that means is is that it's a very simple concept, but 
once you get through uh, looking through a concordance, everything that you've done to uh, see where that what that word means with like a different Strong's concordance, something like that, it's always uh, relative to understanding that concept that if you can go back to the first place that that word was mentioned, uh, in general, when God introduces a concept or, or a particular word, the first place that he introduces that, he's also going to give some uh, context about that word that, that helps to give it flavor, to give it color, uh, Brother Adam, to give it an understanding that if you don't go back and look at that, that generally is where God is introducing something and he's giving the most direct understanding about what, uh, about what that concept is. So in the law of first mention, uh, we'll get to in just a second, but uh, the, the thing that you need to understand about an altar is that it does two things. Okay, you, any altar that you find, you'll find two characteristics of that of every altar. Number one is it's a place of distinction, and the second thing is, is that it is a place of change. So, with that definition, the first thing that we all need to try to understand is that this area that is here from Pastor Wright, all around these good-looking youth. Uh, maybe you need to try some different deodorant. You get some people to set by you over here. This area right here is not the only altar. I I, I kid John because I see him every day at work. So I love him and he loves me and I can kid about him, his seating arrangement. <clears throat> Thank you, Jesus, and his red head now. Uh, this is not the only altar, right? Uh, and and the front part of every church is not the only altar. And all, you can have an altar at your home. Matter of fact, you should have an altar at your home. Uh, I've seen altars pop up. Uh, we've built altars on campuses, college campuses. We've built altar, altars on high school campuses. Uh, I built an altar in Starbucks one time. Uh, I built an altar one time in a Safeway parking lot at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning with a couple of guys that were uh, dressed up in all black. They were full golf, full-on golf. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't see anything about them. But at 1 o'clock in the morning on a Safeway parking lot, they received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You can build an altar anywhere. An altar can, you can build an altar anywhere. The characteristic that you've got to understand is that it's a place of distinction and it's a place of change. Let me give you an example here. Uh, anybody in here, I see some wise people in this place. I'm going to be a little wiser this week, later, uh, this, or next week. So I see some middle-aged folks. Anybody in here that you've had the Holy Ghost for longer than 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, brother Middleton, 40 years. Brother Middleton, <clears throat> where did you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Severin. All right. Uh, brother Mallory, where did you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Okay. 
Brother and Sister Gross, I think I saw your hand up. Where did you guys receive the Holy Ghost? Windsor Avenue. What day? March the 18th. I'm proving my point here in that I can tell you that uh, when I received the Holy Ghost, October 22nd, 1994, my senior year of engineering school, I can take you to the First United Pentecostal Church in Fayetteville, Arkansas, up uh, into the prayer room, and I can show you the chair where I was praying when I first realized that what was coming out of my mouth was not English. Because an altar is a place of distinction. It has, it has a memory to it. And that is, the, that is one of the uh, greatest things about the altar is that I can, there's a, when things are going wrong in my life, everything, let's just say that all the world's going upside down, I can go back to an altar in my mind and find out that, I, that at one point in my life, God touched me, God changed me. Amen. And everybody can do that. Every one of you that have received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you've had an altar in your life that you can go back and say, this was the spot, this was the day, this was the time that when I, I, I knelt down, repented of my sins, and when I got up, I was a different person. Amen. Well, I, I appreciate the good Baptist head nod, but faith... <laughs> I believe, therefore, I've spoken. I'll take a good apostolic amen. All right. And a good Baptist head nod. <clears throat> we all, so in other words, we all have a place that we've been at on the altar before that we know that there was a place of distinction, a place of change in our life at least once if you've received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, the key to being a great altar worker, to being a great person that comes along that knows how to pray with people, that knows how to help them uh, build faith, to walk in faith, to take the next step of faith. The key to that is, is that you don't have just one altar experience in your life. Praise God. <clears throat> Matter of fact, if you want to know the truth about it, and I'll just kind of let the cat out of the bag, typically the more gifted that someone is in helping someone with faith and praying with them, the, the, the more trouble that they've had in their life. Praise God. Oh, I, I, I've had the occasion many times for young people, young men, young women that have come and said, hey, I want to be used of God. And uh, say, okay, well, let's, you know, let's pray about that, et cetera. And one of the questions that I continually ask them uh, over the time is, how is your forgiveness going? And the reason is, is because I don't really care about your anointing. What I care about is your forgiveness. Because if you don't have forgiveness flowing in your life, your anointing is probably the most dangerous that you're gifting is probably the most dangerous thing that you carry around with you. <clears throat> because eventually, if you don't have forgiveness flowing in your life, you'll think that you got that gifting because of who you are and not him. Praise God. So, uh, the law of first mention here, <clears throat> the altar is a place of, of uh, distinction. It's a place of impartation. The law of first mention is uh, Genesis chapter 8 and 20. 
We got somebody up here that's skilled in the media. Uh, And this is where Noah first uh, constructed an altar. God had purged the earth with water. And uh, there was a great flood and all the unrighteousness was killed. There were only eight souls that survived that flood. And the very first thing that Noah did when he emerged from that, from that ark was the very first thing that he did when he got to dry land was that he built an ark. And he began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar. Now, <clears throat> uh, that's Genesis chapter 8. I'm going to go really quick here. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, you'll find that Abraham uh, built an altar. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 8. Uh, he built an altar at Bethel, uh, he built an altar at Ea, he built an ha- altar at uh, Hebron, and one at Moriah. And then uh, he also offered a ram instead of Isaac. But, the, but the, one of the distinguishing characteristics with Abraham is that in uh, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 8, it says that he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. So an altar is a place where that people call on the name of the Lord. And what that means is that uh, that, that is the place, that's the change or the characteristic of the altar is that when you become, to, when you start calling, on the name of the Lord, what you're acknowledging is, is number one, I'm not God. (laughs) And that's probably one of the most important lessons that any of us can learn. You acknowledge that I'm not God when you're calling on him. And number two, what you're acknowledging is, is that I can't do this by myself. I can't be like God without God. Amen. I, I can, it doesn't matter how many self-help books that you read, uh, how many audio tapes, how many uh, whatever that you listen to. You can listen to audio tapes till you get an accent. But unless God is in the mix of all of that, it won't, it won't make you more like God one bit. Now, it might make you feel better about yourself, but it's not going to change you. Praise God. The only thing that can change someone is an experience with God on an altar. And I'll prove that to you before we leave here tonight. Amen. So, uh, Noah built an ark. Abraham built an ark. Both of them called on the name of the Lord. Uh, Genesis chapter 13, verse 4, he built uh, under the place of the altar which he had made there at the first and Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Genesis chapter 22, and verse 9, And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built there an altar. Isaac also built an altar at Beersheba. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 11. I'm talking to you about the history of the altar. Uh, Isaac in uh, 25, it says, And he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. So with Isaac, Isaac went a little farther. And uh, this is important to note and understand is that it's one thing to build an altar. And it's one thing to have a change. But it's a different thing, Brother Isaac, when you pitch your tent there, when you live at the altar. 
So the longer that you see this in, in the Old Testament, the longer that the altar, when it's passed down from generation to generation, what you find is, is that you find more of an affinity, more of a, more of an understanding that I need an altar in my life. If I'm going to be saved, I need an altar in my life. Praise God. Well, you not, might not believe that, so let me just say it like this. If you're going to be saved, <laughs> you need an altar in your life. We live in a nasty, no good world, nothing good in this thing. If you're going to be saved from this world, you need an altar. You need a functioning altar in your life. Praise God. Not only that, you need, a, you need to live. You need to pitch your tent where the altar is. <clears throat> because a life lived on the altar, well, that's where God can do his best work. Jacob erected erected altars at Shechem and Bethel. Genesis chapter 33, uh, he erected there an altar. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 35, and he built there an altar, and he began naming the places. So Isaac pitched his tent there and started living there. My, my, my assumption, my uh, uh, progression of critical thinking here is that Isaac began... Uh, to to pitch his tent there, but then Jacob came behind him, and he began to build altars in other places and naming where he had built those altars because in those places God had done something special. God had done something miraculous. He had come in contact with God in a different way than what he had come in contact with in his tent. Praise God. So here's the progression of this, is that when you begin to build an altar in your life up here in this area, God touches you for the first time. And then, Mike, you, you, you have an altar that you've built, that you've pitched your tent there. Then the progression is, is that that puts you in a position to where that then you can go and build altars in other places. That is the progression of relationship. Relationship doesn't happen with God, doesn't happen out on a campus ministry and suddenly you just get knocked over and all of a sudden you got gifts flowing and all of that. That doesn't happen like that. It doesn't happen like that in a high school. It doesn't happen like that on a job. The way that it progresses is, is that I understand how to get my life on the altar. And once I get that on the altar, and I know how to keep my life on the altar, then God opens up a way for me to begin to minister and for Him to do things that are outside of my normal course. Praise God. <clears throat> so there, there is a progression to how that altars are built and the, and what God is actually doing. Uh, so at some point, God gave Guidance on how altars were be were to be erected in the in the future, and that's Exodus chapter twenty. Uh, and uh, God gave the instruction. He said, "An altar and earth of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, and thy sheep, and thine ox, in all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee." Now just let's pause for just a second and let's consider that. How many of us would like to have God come unto us? One of 
Stephanie, one of the biggest things that I've had and struggles that I've had in my life from time to time is where is God? Now, I didn't randomly pick you out. I'm just saying. What an awesome thing it is to where that when you build an altar and God, and God comes to you. <laughs> Consider that for a moment. For a moment. How, how assuring, how wonderful that is that you can do something that causes God to come unto you. Uh, and if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it out of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto my altar, that thy nakedness be discovered therein. So here it is that God gives directions for the altar and for the tabernacle in Exodus. <clears throat> and then what happens is, is that in that, uh, in that, prior to that, there were no directions that I, that I can find. I cannot find. Now, maybe some of you scholars uh, can help me. But I cannot find anywhere where God gave direction on how to build an altar. Anybody? No? Okay. It was only in Exodus where God begins to give this direction. <clears throat> now, Tim, because the, Hebrew, the way that the... The way that the children of Israel worked is that it, things were passed down from one generation to the next generation. Matter of fact, you see this, this statement in the Old Testament several times where it says that they rehearsed the matter with their family, with their kids, right? So in thinking of this, here's, let me give you my understanding of where all of this came from, where Noah knew how to build an altar. The word altar is not found, but the word sacrifice is found before that. <clears throat> and I believe what happened was, was that in the Garden of Eden, when man fell, God, the, the scripture actually says in Genesis that God, God made uh, aprons for Adam and Eve so that they could be covered and that God made those aprons. Now, my, my understanding... And my viewpoint is, is that the, the particular animal that died there was a lamb. And I've checked this a couple of times with Bishop Wright. He believes that. I assume you believe that since he believes that. You guys are so rarely out of step. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and so I think what you can do is you can go back to the Garden of Eden. And what you will find is, is that God made the first sacrifice. And Adam and Eve knew that and watched that and watched what God did. And then they passed that down to their kids, which is where that you get that uh, Cain and Abel, and one of them made a more excellent sacrifice because he followed what had been rehearsed to him. But there was a point to where that God said, I'm not going to allow you any, I'm, I'm going to give you instructions of how I want my altars built. <clears throat> and it was at that point that, uh, that God gave these instructions that, uh, that there was something that unique, very unique that happened. 
And in the tabernacle, when they begin to bless the tabernacle, they had built the altar according to what God had told them. And they step out and make a prayer. And the Bible says that divine fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice that was on the altar. Amen. I believe my iPad just died, which is consistent with... Oh, here we go. Uh, The Lord resurrected it. And this is Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 22. And Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them and came down from offering of the sin offering and burnt offering and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of congregation, came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat uh, which all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their face. So this was the point at which that God said, here's how I want my altar built. Because prior to that, essentially it was passed down, it was handed down. Some people had made kind of a mockery of that. Uh, primarily, uh, the children of Israel made a mockery of that when they were uh, delivered out of Egypt. And they made a golden calf. Anybody remember that? You know, you do you anybody know uh, when they said that they made made the god? You know what the word there is that that uh, is used? They worshipped Yahweh, but they built a calf, and that's that's why God uh, killed all those folks is because they changed His image. Because they were trying, they weren't trying to change gods. They were worship, they were worshiping Yahweh. But what they had brought out of Egypt, which was the worship of the golden calf, that's what they made to God. And when they changed the when they changed the image of God, God said, "I can't have that." And that's why people had to die there. So this concept of divine fire. <clears throat> Uh, falling on the sacrifice is really the purpose of the altar. How am I doing on time? Okay, good. Uh, What happens, what actually happens at the altar of God, whether whether you understand it or not, is that there is divine fire that falls from heaven and it consumes what has been offered unto God today. Even today, uh, in the that we went through the Old Testament survey. In the New Testament, you'll find different places. You'll find where where uh, Paul went to Athens, I believe it was, and Mars Hill, and he found he found all types of altars built to all types of gods, even to even to one god that the altar that that they built was to the unknown god. They wanted to make sure that they covered all of them. Uh, but in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 is where, is really where the altar, where God begins to give the designs of what the altar is to be done or what the altar is to look like for us. Praise God. So we no longer have a tabernacle that we come to. Uh, we are the tabernacle when we receive the Holy Ghost. 
And the difference is, is that God in the Old Testament used divine fire to consume what we could see in the natural. And what God does in the New Testament is that he uses divine fire to consume the things that we can't see. Because he's much more concerned about the inner man than he is the outward man. Because the principle of the scripture is, is that, in fact, in the Old Testament said, uh, that God, uh, didn't look on the continents of man. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the inside. And that's the first place that God looks at, at us even now to make sure that we are who we are supposed to be. So the principle of the scripture here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, if you can put that up, is that, I'm, and what I'm doing is I'm connecting fire from the history and what the origin of the altar was. Now we're, I'm going to try to connect that, Brother Brown, to what the purpose and the process of the altar is. Amen. So what divine fire did in the Old Testament is that the altar was, the, the sacrifice was laid upon the altar, fire fell from heaven, and it consumed everything that was on the altar. Praise God. Uh, one example, just real quick, was that uh, in, I believe it's 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, uh, Elisha was uh, on the uh, hilltop, and he was, in ha- he was having it out with the prophets of Baal. You guys remember that story, right? Or do I need to? Okay. Praise God. And so the prophets of Baal, they do all their stuff. They're cutting themselves. They're jumping up and down. And uh, and then Elijah, Elijah starts uh, trash talking them. You know, maybe your God's asleep. All this, right? I mean, he is giving them the business uh, better than anybody could do it on a basketball court. and Or football court or golf course or anything like that. He's giving it to them. And the Bible says uh, that at the time of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah, he, he rebuilt an altar. Don't have time to go into what altar I think that is that he rebuilt, but he rebuilt the altar. He steps up and he says, basically, I think it's either 52 or 58 word prayer, right? And divine fire falls from heaven. And prior to that, Elisha had told them, it was in a drought, Elisha, Elijah told them, said, take all the water that you got, and I want you to put the water on the sacrifice. I want you to dig a ditch around the sacri- around where the sacrifice is, where the altar is. I want you to put water in the ditch, and I want you to completely soak it. Does anybody know why? Anybody ever heard me taught why that Elisha did that? The reason is, is because the prophets of Baal, they were, they were trying to, Brother Middleton, they were trying to uh, move the children of Israel into believing that Baal was the one true God. But, th- but those Israelites had seen divine fire fall from heaven. And so, Brother Middleton, what they would do is they would build a fire, the prophets of Baal. They would build a fire around what they were going to sacrifice. And then they would lay hatches over that where that they would smother it where it didn't get the oxygen that it needed. But it was sitting there ready. And then as soon as the, as soon as the prophets of Baal stepped forward and said their prayer or whatever to Baal, then they would, they would, somebody would open that up to where that the fire would, would be moved. 
the fire would start and would consume the altar, but it was a false fire. And so that's why Elisha stands up and says, hey, let's, let's don't make, let's don't make any, any bones about this, right? I want you to put water on everything around here so that you understand that there's no false fire here. There's no hidden fire under my, under the, uh, under the, the, uh, sacrifice that I've put on the altar. When I step forward and I pray, what comes down is going to be divine fire. Praise God. So when you look at that, <clears throat> And you, you, you look at what happens when we receive the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 2 says that, uh, that it, uh, that when we receive the Holy Ghost that, that He poured out Holy Ghost and fire. Now I've always, one of the things, it's just the way my mind works, little statements like that drive me crazy. Anybody else like that or do you just gloss over them? Okay. <coughs> Excuse me, at least one other person in here, things like that drive him crazy. Brother Mallory's an engineer, so he's got the same kind of way of thinking about stuff like that, right? So for years, I've, I've been, what in the world, pulled out Holy Ghost and fire. And then finally, when I, one day when I was teaching this, the Lord, began to, the Lord began to talk to me about what it was that was actually poured out. And the Bible says that God is a, he is a just God. He is a balanced God. And here is the thing that God, that God's, uh, revealed to me in all of this is that because he's balanced, the way that he works is that he, he said that he would never destroy the earth again by water, but he was going to destroy it by fire. And so when he poured out the Holy Ghost in that time period, what he poured out was he poured out judgment, but he also poured out a way of escape. And the, and the beauty of this is, is that the same mechanism that is going to judge this world is also the same mechanism that's going to save us. And that's fire. Because what happens on the altar is that divine fire falls and it basically consumes everything that's not like God. So that's why the burning bush didn't, was not consumed. It burnt, but it, but it didn't consume because that bush was a theophany of God. And God can't change. So when that bush was burning, there was nothing that was changing because that bush represented God. But when we get on the altar, <laughs> praise the Lord, rule number one, you're not God. So when we get on the altar, everything that's, that's a part of us that's not like God that we put on the altar, that's what divine fire does, is divine fire, it falls and consumes everything that's not like God in our life. So Ben, when we received the Holy Ghost, what happens was, was that there, there was judgment that was poured out when the, when the Holy Ghost was first poured out on the day of Pentecost. That was the fire that was poured out. But then when we receive the Holy Ghost, we also receive the Holy Ghost and fire. So we, re we actually receive the ability to be changed and to become like God. Praise God. Isn't that wonderful? So in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, uh, the Bible says <clears throat> that, uh, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
that you present yourselves, a, your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Greek word here in verse 2 that says that ye may prove, <clears throat> that is actually an engineering, it's, it's a, uh, it's a uh, engineered term, Brother Barber. Uh, Brother Barber, well, Brother Barr. Brother Barber was my pastor in Arkansas. <clears throat> um, and, what, and what the Greek word literally means is to assay as in a metal. And what, what you do when you assay a metal is you determine its purity. So when God says that you be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove or you can prove what the purity is, uh, what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is he's giving you this word picture of a refiner setting over a boiling, molten pot of metal. Silver uh, is my understanding. And what's going on is, is that the way that you prove metal is that you keep adding heat to the fire. And then at some point, what happens is, is that the impurities that's in that metal, Brother Mallory, they have a different density than what the metal is, what the pure metal. And, it's, and the pure metal is always heavier, so it sinks to the bottom. And what happens is, is the impurity that's in that metal rises to the top. So what the word picture here is, is that the refiner is setting over this molten pot of metal. And he's adding heat to the fire. Something like what might, Paul might call the trying of your faith. Right? And he's putting that heat in there so that what happens is, is that everything that's impure, everything that's not like God comes to the surface. And then Brother Brown, what they do, the refiner, he's got a, he's got a, uh, uh, it's, it's a, a way to remove the dross off the top. Now my grandmother used to have a wooden spoon. And that wooden spoon was used for bacon, biscuits, and whooping. <laughs> Removing the dross. Same thing. <clears throat> and that's what, that's what the refiner does is that that dross comes up to the top and he's got like a, it's, it looks like a little wooden stick that goes over the top of that metal and removes that dross. Now, the secret is, is do you know when the refiner is done? Is when he keeps putting heat and more heat, and there's no dross on the top of that metal. And then what happens is, is that the refiner can look over the top of that metal, and when he sees his reflection in that metal, he knows that he's done. Because the dross is removed. The same thing happens in our life. Is that we've got the trials of our faith. The, the things that 
pop up in our, that, that adds heat, that adds fire, that adds pressure into our life. And God comes along, John, and he removes the, all the dross that comes up. He removes that off the top of that metal. And he's only done when you're hid in him. When you no longer see him, or you no longer see yourself, you see him in the reflection of you. And that is, the, that is the process of what's actually happening in the New Testament altar is that the principle is I must decrease that he can increase. And the only way that that happens is, is that there's got to be less of me and more of him. Meaning something's got to die. And it's not God because not God's not going to change. And if you're playing that stupid game, <laughs> I can tell you the end of that game is that you're going to die. God's not going to change. Eventually, you're going to come to the end of yourself and give up. And you're going to crawl up. You're going to put yourself on the altar. And divine fire is going to fall and it's going to consume everything that's not like God. Praise God. Now, just as a side note here. There are t- if uh, give me that uh, Romans chapter twelve verse one. <clears throat> so in thermodynamics, there is there is the law of en- of conservation of energy, meaning that you can't create or destroy mass. You can't create or destroy energy. All you can do is have it change forms, right? And uh, when I was getting ready for this session, I really felt the Lord impress me to talk about conforming to this world. So the, the scripture says, the scripture instructs us to lay up not our treasures in earthen vessels, but to put them in heaven where wrath, moth, rust cannot corrupt. Right? Anybody know what the process of fire, what is actually happening on a molecular level? level? Yes. What? Oxidation. Thank you. You get, you get to sit in that seat for free. <clears throat> so when fire is occurring the, on a molecular level, there's actually an oxidation process that's happening. The oxidation process what happens is it's an exothermic reaction, meaning that it gives off heat. So when you are oxidized, you're giving off heat. And what happens for combustion is that you're giving off, giving off so much heat that the temperature of what should be burning raises to a point of its ignition point, And then it starts to burn. Brother Barr? Brother Barber, Brother Barr, whoever you want to be tonight. You have a, do, do you know what the process that causes rust is? Oxidation. The same thing that causes fire also causes rust on a molecular level. The difference is, is that where this scripture says, Paul said that you present your, uh, go back up one. Sorry, go down to two. 
and be not conformed to this world. The word conform there means to actually take on the shape. And the way that heat is transferred is by area. So the more area or the more contact that you have with the world, (laughs) the less fire can be produced in your life and the more rust occurs. So one of the principles that everybody always comes, well, do I have to do this? You know, do I have to do that? I want to be used of God, but can I still do X, Y, Z? My answer always is, can you still build a fire if you do that? Because if you put too much, too many things in your life that are of this world, and you've got too much contact with them, the, the natural process that God has put in your life when you receive the Holy Ghost, because when you, you received the Holy Ghost, you received fire in your life. But if you start conforming to this world, that fire is not going to consume. The fire is not going to be hot enough to consume what's not God. It's going to rust you. So what happens in this is that be, uh, uh, be not conformed to this world that you may be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is that there are, there are not three levels or three different, uh, I don't even know, three levels of the will of God, right? There's only one will of God. The Greek word is thelema, and it's his wish, want, or desire. There's only one will of God. What this is referring to is that you may be able to prove what is the, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God are different growth stages of us. Because when we first get the Holy Ghost, the very first thing that God begins to deal with us about is the evil that's in our life. And the way that he begins to deal with that is, is by showing you what's good. There's, not, there's none good, only God. And when God comes into your life, the revelation of what he's doing is he's beginning to show you what's evil in your life. Praise God. So this is where sin is. When you first get the Holy Ghost, all y'all were perfect. When I first got the Holy Ghost, I had some stuff that I had to get rid of that was, that was evil. It was not evil. It was evil. Because I was in college, living in a frat house. Praise the Lord. And there were some some things that had to die in my life that was sin. Now, while I'm here, uh, all of y'all that have had the Holy Ghost less than a year, let me just tell you, one of the things, one of the first things that God begins to deal with every person that receives the Holy Ghost is about your money. Now, why is that? Because the book says, this is not me, but the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And so, why does God begin dealing with you about your tithe and your offering? Is because it's the first growth stage that you go through. 
it's not because we want your money. It's because that we want you to be able to move on to what's acceptable and perfect. And if you can't get, if you can't get mammon right, you're not going to get the kingdom right. Can I get a good Baptist head nod and a hearty amen? <laughs> right. So that's why, that's what God begins to do from the onset is he deals with you with good versus evil. Once you get that faith done, once you get dealing with that good and evil, he moves on and he begins to deal with things in your life that are acceptable. <clears throat> I wasn't planning to go here tonight, so I'm going to need a little bit of help. But the scripture says, I think it's in Romans, that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it is righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. Right? Could, yes? No? Yes? Anybody quote the next verse? <laughs> I've done that a hundred times, and every single time, everybody goes. The, the, next, the next verse says something like this. He that, he that serveth in these things is accepted of God. So what happens is, is that God begins to deal with you about good and evil in your life. Remember, we're talking about divine fire and the process of fire and what it does in your life. Once you get good and evil down, then he moves on to things of the kingdom. And part of the reason that people can't be used in the kingdom is because they can't get good and evil right. Well, praise the Lord. So once you get, once you get the kingdom, God begins to deal with you with the things that are of this kingdom. The next thing that he begins to deal with you is about perfection. And, and that is about motive. It's about why you do the things that you do in the kingdom. Do you do those things so that you get the credit and you get the glory? Or do you do those things for him to get the glory and get the credit? That's one of the great things about youth ministry is that sooner or later you're going to be too old to be in youth ministry. <laughs> you're going to be too old to youth pastor. Praise God. Uh, too wise to youth pastor. I'm sorry. <clears throat> sorry. And, uh, and, you're go- and you're going to move on. And when you do, you're going to figure out what you, what, whether what God built through you was done in the right motive. Did you build it up on your talent? Did you build it up? On your ability, did you build it up on your hard work, your sweat, or did you pray it into existence from an altar? Praise God. That's why you ought to pray for all your youth pastors. (laughs) Amen. So this process of fire is uh, is what is actually happening on the altar. And here, here, is, here is the whole crux of why that I've covered these couple of things before is that the key concept here is that if you want to be used of God in, in, in working the altar, you want to be used of God to pray with people because what is happening at this altar is divine fire. You've got to know how to handle fire. And the only way that you learn how to handle fire is in your own life. 
Now let me just quickly move, and then I think I'm going to be done, if the Lord says. Let me quickly move as to what are the things that drive you to the altar. Praise God. Because the altar, doesn't that sound good? Oh, I'm going to go lay myself on the altar. Anybody want to go, everybody, anybody want to go find an altar right now? Two people, three people, yeah, right, okay. I knew I was doing good teaching. Four of us want to go find an altar. (laughs) Let me tell you a secret about human nature. Very rarely do you run across anyone that wants to die. Very rarely do you find an Isaac that would climb up on the altar. They're there, but it's rare. If we're just being honest, it's just us home folks, right? It's just us. If we're just being honest, most of us don't find an altar. Most of us don't find a place to sacrifice ourselves if we're being honest. Can we just be honest for five seconds? Then we, then you put your mask back on and go, oh, no, I, you know, I got that working in my life every day. You a lie. The devil is a lie. <clears throat> Generally, what happens is, is that God has to put tribulation into our life to drive us to a point that we come to the end of ourselves and we realize that we've got to go find an altar. Now, there, there is a scripture uh, that's coming to mind, but I can't, re- I can't remember the reference right now. But it says something to the effect that God, that God reveals his righteousness from faith to faith. Anybody can help me with that? Close enough then. <clears throat> if y'all don't know it, I'm close enough. And uh, what happens is, is from faith to faith, is that when we get to the point that we understand that we're at a place that we can no longer, it, it, I, can't, I can't help myself. I've got to go search and find God. I've got to go find that altar. What happens is, is that we remember the last place of faith. And what Noah did, because in his righteousness, he built an altar. When we, in our righteousness, and to continue righteousness in our life, to have it revealed, we have to continually build an altar. God understands this because it's the process that he started in the Old Testament. So what happens is, is that the scripture says that offenses must come. (laughs) Oh, I don't want to be offended. Well, I've got a secret for you. If you've been living for God probably longer than about 32 seconds... Can I get one good amen? I guarantee you, you've been offended. It doesn't matter how laid back you are. Now, for all of us folks that are not laid back, (laughs) offense turns to anger like that before quick can get ready. But I, I, I know this, that you've been offended because the Bible says that offenses must come. And in general, the only way, no man knows his own heart. 
The only way that you figure out what's inside of you is when you get offended. That's the only way. So what God does is He uses offense to come into your life. And then you, I, I've heard people say, you know, when, the, when they got offended and got mad, well, I, I didn't say that, did I? Well, yeah, you did. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when you get offended, you can hear what you're saying. And it will tell you what's in your heart. Praise the Lord. I've, I've heard people, well, Bishop preached it too hard. Well, what you're saying was, Bishop didn't preach it too hard. What you're saying is, is your heart was in a place that you couldn't receive the word. But if you'll listen to the words that you're saying, I mean, some people survived that hard preaching. <laughs> some of us survived being called over to the parsonage. <laughs> uh, 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 you got a second? You never had that phone call. You've never had your life rocked. Some of, some of us survived all of that. The reason is, is because we had something in our heart that when, that was, we knew the process that when we got offended, we knew where to go. But I believe it's Matthew, uh, there's a parable about, uh, the, the, uh, 100 sheep, right? Most of us refer to it as the 90, uh, 99 and the 1. Has anybody ever, anybody ever really studied that out? And do you know where the one sheep went? Where? The mountain. You've heard me teach on this before, hadn't you? It went to the mountain. Do you know what the word mountain in the Greek is? It's transliterated. O-R-E. Or. The same stuff that you put into the refiner's pot is where the, is where the lost sheep went because he was offended and that's why you want to know why people they they have problems when they get offended they have problems come to church they have problems fellowshipping is because they're a lost sheep because they go to the mountain instead of bringing the ore to the refiner's pot instead of bringing the offense where that it can be dealt with they take they go to where the offense is praise god so in our life, what we've got to be, do, what we've got to understand is that offenses must come. I've been, I've been, I've been offended in my life. I've been offended almost unto death. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm, as Joe Biden would say, I'm not playing, man. I'm serious, man. I've been I've been offended almost to just a breath or two of my life. Anybody else in here? I mean, surely. So, okay, now we got a few honest people. I saw a lot, Brother Tipton, I believe, right? Brother Tipton's going to give us some honesty. He held up both hands. <clears throat> if you've been in ministry <laughs> any length of time, <laughs> I promise you, you've been offended unto death. Because you've lost at least one soul. 
that was under your leadership that walked away from God that you've poured yourself into. I'm thinking of two right now that you've poured your guts into. You've poured every revelation that God's ever given you into them and they stood up, turned around and walked out the door and unfortunately took their family with them. If you've been in ministry, I promise you, you've been offended. But the difference is between making it and not making it is that when you are offended, you know where to go. You don't go to the mountain. You go to the altar. The sheep was lost not because, not because that it had stumbled away. The sheep was lost because the parable of this is the sheep was lost because it was offended and it went to the mountain. And that's the reason that if you follow that, that, uh, out, I believe that's Matthew chapter 18, correct? Mr. Soundman? At the bottom, at the bottom of that chapter, you'll find the organization, the rest of that chapter, Brother Barr, is the organizational authority to be able to bind and loose, bind and loose and the procedure to be handled when someone is offended to where that they could be cast out of the church. The par- that, that particular passage of Scripture of where that you, you go to someone and tell them, hey, you've, you know, I'm, I'm offended, they don't hear you, you take your brother back with them with you, tell them, hey, I'm offended. They still don't do anything. You can bring them before the church. The beginning of that passage of Scripture is the parable of the lost sheep. Because the only thing that will bring a a person to a place to where they could get cast out of the church is because they will not forgive. Praise God. Because freely we've received... Freely we should give. And one of the first things that we received was forgiveness. And if you can't give forgiveness, you're not going to get forgiveness continually. Praise God. So here is the, here is the altar of the New Testament in that we put ourselves on the altar. And the principle is, is that everything that's not like God, divine fire, falls and consumes what's not like him. So I know that there was a there was a time that we did some teaching <clears throat> about what it was uh that there was a signal that we had and I just want to mention this Pastor Wright can uh reinstitute this if he'd like but there was a there was a time uh back when you was probably just a little baby <clears throat> that when the the uh signal was given and generally the signal was do y'all do you guys know uh when when pastor Wright is done preaching do you know what 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 his signal is am i giving this away for the musicians to come closes bible right y'all all picked that up <clears throat> used to there was a there was a signal that said and these were the words these altars are open and that was the signal for everyone that wanted to be used in the altar. Timothy, help me. To get up, you're already standing. You want to be used at the altar, right? You come right on down to the front, right? The altars are open. Timothy gets it down here with his hog shirt on. 
Wupig Sui, lifts his hands up, prays, makes sure that all the fire is done with him, that everything's good with him, just take 20, 30 seconds. Well, guess what? When he's done, when he turns around, guess what's in front of him? Everybody, everybody that's coming down for the altar that doesn't know how to handle fire. So he's perfectly positioned to then figure out who it is that, that God's got him uh, lined up to pray with. So we've become so, one of the things that I just feel to put here is that we've become so passive with divine fire in our life that when something goes, when there's a call that goes out in the spirit that says, hey, these altars are open, we automatically assume that those altars are for someone else. And I'm here, I guess, tonight, one of the things is to challenge all of us is that we should have divine fire available in our life every every single day, every moment. We should be instantly in season. And when there is an altar call, there should be an altar response. Not just from the unsaved, but primarily from the saved. Because when you start to take a, when you start to take a step that builds the faith of all of those that are around you to also take a step. I, I, can, I can testify this to you about this because when I went to the altar, I was the only one in the altar. They, it, Moby Dick was a minnow back when they prayed somebody through before they prayed me through. It had been a long time. <clears throat> and it took me a long time to pray through. Because I had some eval things going on in my life. So probably for about six months, Brother Adam, in in all transparency, probably for about six months, every single time that Brother Ray Hassel got through preaching, I went to the altar. And I was the only one that went to the altar. And it was pretty uncomfortable at times. But I had to be saved. But everybody doesn't have to do that because we, we know what it is to have divine fire working in our life. We know how to handle offenses. We know how to be right when we come to church so that we can, or elsewhere when we're out ministering. We know those things. Praise God. Let's stand. <clears throat> can we pray for just a moment? I think I'm done. Hieramondo Cosiata. In the name of Jesus, Father, we commit this word to you. In the name of Jesus, Father, I've tried to be an echo of your spirit. To say nothing more, nothing less than you won't say it. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, Come on, right now. Let's just go a little farther here for a moment. Well, there's there's one that just got the just got the the call. I'm I'm kind of giving an altar call. Anybody got an altar response? Let's go a little farther. There we go. 
in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, Father, let your fire have its perfect weight in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. In the name of Jesus, Father, your word declares that you are consuming fire. In Jesus' name, meaning that everything that's not like you that you come into contact with, you consume. In Jesus' name, In the name of Jesus, Father, let your fire fall in this place right now. Let it fall in hearts and minds. God, let everything that's not like you be slain on the altar. Let it be killed for your glory, for your benefit, that we can be more like you that we can be a reflection like you, that we can be a reflection of you, that we can be an echo of you. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus.